We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know, and sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully, the justice that was ultimately delivered. Don Palumbo. Jonah Lanto. Welcome back to Off the Vine. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Yeah. Again, our second our second live show. Second live show. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, we'll, um, second of many more. It's a lot of fun. Big thanks to uh, author CJ Wynn for her help in writing the intro to Midwest Murder. Also to none other than um, Nomad Design House for designing our logo and sponsoring this episode of the show. Thank Who's you. Who's actually in the audience tonight, too. Yeah. The, the person who designed our awesome logo is here somewhere. We won't, we won't totally point her out, except she's raising her hand. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you to Off the Vine. And thanks to everyone who has rated and reviewed the podcast. The, the comments, the feedback, the support that we've received from our listeners has been just so fabulous. And we're just so, so very grateful. If I kept talking about it, I would actually probably tear up. So, Jonah, what are people saying about Midwest Murder? Pretty excited. We really appreciate you guys from taking the time out of your busy lives to give us a review on iTunes. This one's from Jess K. True crime fix close to home. I'm a self-described true crime junkie and MM hits all of the nails on the head for my addiction. I love listening to the thought-provoking banter and in-depth information that Jonah and Don provide. That sort of thing doesn't happen around here was a line I heard frequently growing up in Minot. And this podcast has officially proven that it is not always true. Keep them coming, guys. I can't get enough. That's so cool. Yeah. we Thank you. And this one's from Derek Sovak. I love this. Coming from the Midwest and even from the area these stories originated from, I can say this podcast is one of my favorites. The 50-50 cast is my favorite, and I even asked my family about it as I was but a baby when it happened in my hometown. My mom filled me in on her remembrance of the murders, which only made me more intrigued. I recommend this podcast to anyone that is into true crime, mystery, or intrigue. I give it a five out of five. The rapport between Jonah and Don is some of the best banter you can hear, even when dealing with such serious subjects. Good stuff, easy to listen to, and totally worth it. Your words are very humbling, Derek Sovak. Thank you so very much again to you and everybody who takes a moment to review our show. It helps us lot. Get, it helps us get recognized on the national scene quite a bit. So that's awesome. Yeah. So if you're well, first, did you pay him to say those things? Because I feel like it, when people that's that that wasn't funny. That's not a funny joke. I wasn't making a joke there. Um, I but, didn't. Um, Jeez. Was, but because when people say that we have good banter, I'm like. Oh, my head's not gonna be able to fit through the door. Like, oh, look at us, we're so funny. I, I feel, yeah. I feel a lot of pressure. Yeah. I, now I'm gonna like freeze up and be super awkward about it. That's in true fashion. So anyway, super blown that away would be by a the true crime. Oh, if that happened. Don't even start there. Oh. That's not. Don't. Don't. No? You dare. Nobody laugh at that. <laughs> Trisha, I see you laughing. Don't laugh. Thank that's you not for funny. encouraging me. Yeah. That's. Don't do that. <laughs> anyway, we're. I'm, I'm blown away by the the support we've received. And you know, if you're willing, we'd. Um, if you haven't left a, a a rate and a review and a subscribe, it helps Midwest Murder move up the charts and uh, does wonderful things for this little podcast of ours. So thank you very very much. If you're from North Dakota, you have likely heard of the Wolf family. I first heard an overview of this story quite a few years ago, and it's it stayed with me. I've never forgotten it. So it's a it's a doozy. You're jumping off out of the gates with a pretty big assumption, thinking all of us just know the Wolf family, like old friends or what? Everybody knows them. I said you have likely oh, heard. Oh, okay. Yeah, don't. don't first, I'm a first timer. Don't try to be funny here. It's my first time this meeting is, the Wolf family. It was uh, it was 1920. The beginning of the Roaring Twenties, and it had a politically driven, war-filled start. So what a way to kick off the decade by passing the 18th Amendment, better known as Prohibition. Boo. So yeah, can I get a collective boo, boo for that? That's, um, as we're sitting in a bar, I'm drinking a beer as I'm telling this story. Um, Back when they tried to ruin people's lives. Well, we have the Women's Christian Temperance 
union to thank. They were the ones, they were the driving force behind that. They'll not get my thanks. The, the 19th Amendment was also passed. Are you stand-up hour? What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. Anyway, the 19th Amendment was, uh, was also passed, giving women the right to vote, even though it didn't give all women the right to vote, but the majority did, did well, not even the majority, didn't give all women the right to vote. The Treaty of Versailles took effect, ending World War I, and brought home the rest of the American troops. That, but that wouldn't be the end of the other wars around the world. Ireland stood up for its independence. There was the Mexican Revolution, the Polish-Soviet War. But on a positive note, the League of Nations was formed that year. The ACLU, or the American Civil Liberties Union, I can't understand why it was founded, but it makes sense. Clearly, that was, that was sarcasm. That, but nobody laughs at that. Okay, okay, I get it. <laughs> Okay, so anyway, then apparently mailing your children was such a big issue during this time frame. I, you heard what I said, that mailing your children, that the U.S. Post Office made a ruling that year that it was illegal to send children via parcel post. Holy shit. Yeah. That so, had to be a rule? And they had to make a rule about mailing, not mailing your children. So, Whoa. Um, what a time to be alive. So after that, we weren't. So after that little nugget of information, there's we're, we're done with 20. But the beginning of a new decade... 2020 um, climaxes with that Usually one. 1920, yeah, 100 years 1920. ago. The beginning of a new decade usually offers some time to reflect up upon the past, but also looks towards the future. And even though the 2020 was somewhat of a doozy, what's different now than 100 years ago and what's the, what's the same? Grandparents and great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents were experiencing the end of the 1918 flu pandemic. We're trying to end one. The average human lived to be about 54 years old. And now it's about 78. So in 100 years, we've, we've gained that much time. In 1920, we were battling culture wars. And while the fights may have changed, the divides haven't. Racial issues were at the forefront, and they continue to be. In 1920, we were fighting alcohol. And 100 years later, we're fighting the war on drugs. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. So what we'll also, what we'll see through this story that I'm going to tell you tonight is how very different the methods of law enforcement are today than they were in 1920. So that's another huge, huge change and, and something that was like blatantly clear as I was researching this case. So I'm going to do a little history lesson before, so bear with me. North Dakota is known for its heavy Scandinavian population, especially Norwegians who were the, who were the largest population of immigrants in the state. The second largest is not Swedish or anything from, or anyone from the Scandinavian region at all. They're German Russian immigrants. So the funny thing is, is they aren't actually of Russian descent. So without going too deep, and maybe Myth America can cover this topic someday, another show on the Good Talk Network. Do you like that plug? It's a good one. Yeah, yeah, I know. Smart moves. I wrote that myself. The the immigrants that ended up here were, were Germans whose ancestors were from Russia. So because of some promises of free agriculture agricultural land from Catherine the Great or Catherine II of Russia, a large group of Germans moved from Germany to Russia and were given special privileges, went on with their customs, didn't... And they, and they didn't mingle with their Russian neighbors. They had these little German communities in Russia. And they continued that way for about 100 years until Alexander II took power and decided that the arrangement with, with Catherine the Great was no more. It was null. So those Germans, now known as Germans from Russia, moved to the new land of the United States of America because of the promising outcomes or hopeful hopefulness of the Homestead Act. So German Russians continued to be very traditional once they got here. They were God-fearing folk, not completely accepting of technology or even just change. They avoided being a, a part of American culture and felt that working hard and making a living was far more important than being educated. So you found a lot of you know teenagers when you'd get to what we would consider middle school, you know, they would stop going to school and, and work. I feel so. like the real story here is this is the origin point of North Dakota stubbornness. If you've been wondering where yours comes from. This could be it. And you hail from North Dakota. It could be. Could, could be could a part be of these it. Guys. Yeah. So you're probably wondering why this is relevant. And it's there, there's a thing in, in North Dakota called the German-Russian Triangle or even the Sauerkraut Triangle, which is North Central, South Central, and a small part of the Southwest. So Turtle Lake, North Dakota, which is where our story unfolds tonight, is right in the middle of that. So many of the people in the area, or in that area in 1920, were German Russians. So Jacob Wolf was one of them and immigrated to North Dakota in 1902, eventually settling in Turtle Lake, North Dakota in 1903, and was able to homestead some land about three miles and then later two and a half miles north of the little town. So his farmstead was well-maintained, and, and even though the German-Russian culture was typically resistant to change, his farming methods were quite current. So he had kind of moved with the times, was modern for that for that time. So he was also very frugal and incredibly hardworking, which really anybody who's on a farm, I mean, they've got to be 
they've got that work ethic. And that, so that made him one of the most successful farmers within the, the community and the surrounding area. So although it's been said that Jacob could be difficult at times, he didn't seem to have any enemies. But what no one knew at the time, though, was that even though Jacob was well-liked, he feared that his life was potentially in danger. So in 1905, Jacob, at the age of 25, married Beda Bossert when she was 20. So Beda was also a German-Russian immigrant and had family in the area. She had two brothers, uh, Jacob and Rudolf, that farmed about 11 miles away turtle, from Turtle Lake near Mercer. She also had a sister, Christina, who was married to a fellow by the name of Emanuel Hofer. So they farmed nearby as, as well, so in, the, in that same area. So Beda, like her husband, was no stranger to work. And like most farm wives, she certainly wasn't afraid to do some hard labor. Good traditional North Dakotan mm-hmm. farming family here. Yeah, big time. So together, Jacob and Beda had six daughters together and... All very good good German names. Bertha was 12, Maria 9, Edna 7, Lydia 5, Martha 3, and Emma 8 months old. So you'll find that there are a lot of people... I'm throwing a lot of names at you anyway, but there are a lot of people named Jacob. So I'll try to make it very clear which Jacob I'm talking about. So the German culture typically chose a lot of biblical names and gender-appropriate names. So it, so it was very clear Jacob was a boy. So that's, that was kind of how their tradition worked. So I found it fascinating. And there are even Jacobs I didn't even, in the story that I didn't even mention. So it was there were a lot. So just a little fun fact on the side there. So the Wolf ha- family had such a large farming operation that they hired a, a farmhand, 13-year-old Jacob Hofer, the nephew of Beta's sister. And yeah, he was 13. I did say that right. Because remember, it was better to work your ass off instead of going to school. And, you know, child labor laws were, you know, non-existent. non-existent. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So people and, and neighbors, I mean, obviously in an operation like that, they noticed what happened around that farmstead. So they paid attention. So on Saturday, April 24th, 1920, having not seen Jacob since Thursday, John Kraft, who was a neighbor to Jacob, was driving by on his way into town and noticed that laundry had been, or the same laundry had been hanging on the line for about two days. And obviously beyond dry was still flapping in the wind. One of Jacob's horses also appeared to have been loose in the yard for both both days. So he saw him in different areas of the, the yard both times he drove by. So concerned, he decided that he should probably drop in on his friend and make sure that everything was okay. And what he would find on that farmstead is still one of the state's most haunting and brutal crimes today, even over a hundred years later. So according to author and historian Vernon Keel, John and his wife, Jesse, pulled into the farmstead. Jesse remained with his vehicle and John started towards the house. So for those of you who have spent any time on a farm or ranch or even out in the country, you're constantly aware of someone pulling into your yard. So someone at that point you know, when, he, when they drove in, into the farmstead, someone from that large family would have stepped away from their work to at least just say hello or just, you know, pay them some attention. But it was quiet. So as he walked up to the farmhouse, he called out for Jacob and Bita, and no one answered. The doors to the house were open, and he called out again. Walking into the kitchen, he noticed pools of blood and then a trail of what appeared to be bloody tra- drag marks leading to the trap door to the cellar. Mm. And of course, you know, this is an old farmhouse in 1920, so it's... You know, it's the cellar door that was, it was, you know, just a dirt room, basically. So at that time, he heard the wail of what could only be coming from eight-month-old Emma. So he crossed the small farmhouse, ignoring the pools of blood, to find her in a crib, cold, hungry, soiled, and crying. So John immediately grabbed little baby Emma and brought her out to his wife, who was waiting by the car outside. So as his wife tried to console the crying infant, John heard pigs in the cow shed. Um, And so the cow shed, you know, it's where they go to get milked, or just, you know, when they're not in the pasture. And obviously pigs don't belong in the cow shed. So he quickly made his way to the barn and noticed more streaks of blood or what also looked like drag marks in the dirt leading to the barn door. So John opened the door to the cow shed and saw the lifeless body of his friend Jacob Wolf laying on the ground, half covered by hay and partially mutilated from the pigs who had been feasting on the remains. Oh. Oh. Sorry, you guys are eating. Um, yeah. After chasing the pigs away and securing them, he moved the hay that was covering the body and noticed that one of the wolf daughters was laying beneath beneath her father. So John was not able to tell which of the children was on the ground because they too had been partially eaten by the pigs and were nearly unrecognizable. So knowing that there was only tragedy left to be found, he went back to the kitchen in the house, opened the trap door to the cellar, and the smell of death immediately sucking the oxygen out of the air and nearly making him sick. Through the darkness, he saw that what can only be described as a mangled pile of bodies on the dirt floor. He ran out of the house to the car and together with his wife, holding perhaps the only survivor of the wolf family, rushed 
1920 car kind of way, the infant to a nearby nearby neighbor's farm. So he dropped his wife off at their own farmstead so she could be with their children and then continued to town to alert the authorities of the heartbreaking massacre of the Wolf family. What what a terrible scary thing to come up on and and just the eerie aura right when he approaches to what is traditionally a pretty bustling farmstead kids Mm -hmm. are doing work cows are being milked there's generally going to be an activity on the farm you're going to see people Mm -hmm. outside as you said getting in getting getting guests was was kind of a big deal and so well and something you paid attention to right just you knew you know what was going on on your own land right yeah so just that that feeling of of approaching this what this scene would be and and stumbling into the murders like that i well and immediately knowing something's not right you know just just by that something very unsettling very immediately i I think it's, it's one of those feelings that we all might have a sense of but hopefully have never had to right. experience right. that dread. So in, in 2021, so modern day, you know, if we see a crime or if we stumble upon a, a crime scene such as this one or even even much more minor, we would immediately call 911 or at the very least our first concern or our first move would be to notify law enforcement. In 1920, things were very, very different. So John on his way in, so he's, he first thought of going to the town doctor but thought that the pharmacy doctor's office they were in the same building might be too busy. So you know, then he thought about maybe notifying the town leaders, but he wanted to avoid alarming the people of the town too soon, you know, not knowing, of course, you know, what the hell just happened. So he eventually landed on going to the newspaper office. What? So the... Of all the yeah. choices? Right. So that's... Alert the media! So, well, that's... It's dead bodies! <laughs> right. Not, but... Well, I mean, he, I think, you know, in that in that time frame, he knew he could be trusted. It was It was just a different... You know, I think so. I think even even though we've seen law enforcement change, we've also seen journalism change, right? So, going there first, it's it's I don't know. I guess he there were he he thought that it would be the the place with the least amount of people. So J M Smith, the owner of the paper, listened to John recount, and really he kind of took charge of the whole operation right away. So he listened to John tell the story of what he discovered at the wolf farm and JM then went into action and formulated a plan to get the right people to the farm. So it was really the fact that 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 was his first call is just, I mean, it shows how we've evolved uh, over time. So then JM, the journalist then said, Hmm, we should get the policemen here. Yeah. Um, so it's it was very they very respected different. journalists a lot more than well, clearly uh, from, from uh, modern clearly. times. Uh, so policeman Jim Lynch was ordered to or was instructed by the journalist to contact Sheriff Oli Steffrud, who was on his way to Bismarck, which was you know about sixty miles away at the time, with McLean County State's Attorney John Williams. So the town doctor, Doc Heinzeroth, very good German name, was to then get the county coroner from Garrison to the crime scene right away so he could be one of the first people there. So then the telephone exchange began calling everyone. So that was the that was the third order of business was to then alert everyone. Because they didn't they didn't know I mean, they had no idea what was going on. Was this guy, you know, was it a, a isolated act? Was it, you know, a mass murder? Is there a mass murder on yeah, the loose? Which, I mean, obviously, yeah, it, it, even if it was an isolated act, it, it could still be considered a right mass for but, that instant. Yes. But is, are people in yeah. further danger? Right, exactly. So, according to researcher Vernon Keel, the message that Martha was Martha was the the exchange operator was to read to everyone was quote This is an emergency. The entire Jacob Wolf family north of Turtle Lake has been murdered, except for the baby. The county authorities have been contacted. No one knows who did this or why, but the murderers are still on the loose. So lock your doors and be alert for any strangers. Call the operator if you notice anything or anyone suspicious. What a message. And to think, correct me if I'm wrong, but at this time, that was an individual call that she made one by one by one, one by to one. everybody with a phone in the area. I, I, I wonder mm-hmm. how many people that was, but it wasn't It wasn't an instant message or even no. broadcast across the, 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 the phone network, network right? Mm-hmm. It no. was, she called yeah. dozens of people. And imagine getting that call and, and oh, you'd have a bunch of questions for this poor lady just trying to tell everybody, mm-hmm. I don't know. No, I don't know. No, we don't know who murdered him. No, we don't know when it happened. Like you're going to get right. bombarded with questions and just to well. And her dad. Interesting fact: her dad was actually uh, the policeman, Jim Lynch. So, okay. so he did stay there for a while, you know, just to to be there to kind of field any any information. But you know how terrifying. I mean, the the the, the entire town and the the surrounding community they were they were in an uproar, rightfully so. I mean, everybody was terrified. They had no idea what happened. So it was then that a caravan of people and 
again, like I have to remind myself that this was 1920. They didn't have these procedures in place. So I, I want like I want to say a caravan of unqualified people. Sure, from it's town. the mob. I, I mean, you know, I was waiting for the mob to show up. Well, Once those calls went out, the mob, the mob around. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so this this caravan of people from town drove to the wolf farm. So along the way, a McLean County deputy who was actually working for the town doctor on his farm, Emil Wells, was notified and immediately headed to the crime scene. So he was he decided that he was going to stay on scene until other authorities like the sheriff and the state attorney could get there. So there were some policy, you know, in procedures obviously that that were in place i mean so it's but he didn't quite break out the yellow tape well they used string okay actually so that's interesting fun fact there i've said fun another another point yeah how how things have (laughs) evolved yeah exactly yeah so once everybody gets there don craft the neighbor then began showing the crowd of people what what he had discovered how he had discovered it of course deputy wells is explaining you know nobody touches anything and it, so at this point i mean there were several people people just lumbering through this murder crime scene of course so crime scene preservation just was obviously not, not, not a well, thing non-existent you know? yeah. so once the and i air quote tour was finished deputy wells locked the main door to the farmhouse but then left the door to the summer kitchen open so it's an unsecured place so someone from the sheriff's department would remain on the property all night watching people who had absolutely no business being there but they were coming and going because well, again, they turned a zoo out of a murder scene yeah, it makes absolutely. sense absolutely were they um, charging admission too or when it was a different time people were i get it people no, were curious i mean they didn't you know morbid was, curiosity it brought it us was, all here tonight Well, it's also, I mean, it's also the time that, well, good point. Um, But it's also the time frame that, that, you know, people took pictures of their deceased loved ones in, in coffins because the people that couldn't travel, you know, it's, they could, I mean, it's a super, it feels very icky today, but that's, that's what they did because people couldn't travel. It took, you know, 30 years to get across, you know, North Dakota. So it's, it's, I mean, it's, yeah. So it's, it's around that same time. People just didn't have that, those boundaries like we do today. So protocols were loose. Right. Yeah. So anyway, the, they had orders that the bodies were to remain at the farm untouched and as they were found until the investigation was finished. So police work was obviously very different. So it's nice to see that it's evolved tremendously from where it was back then. Forgive me if you said this, this is okay. So we're in the springtime. I'm just wondering, you got, you got dead, dead bodies marinating in a house for days waiting. Oof. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and I know you, I kind of skipped over it, but the summer kitchen. So I, I said that the, the door to the summer kitchen would remain open. Do you know what a summer kitchen is? I, I have no idea what a summer kitchen is. So it was on the, that sounded very staged. I do not know what that is. Do you um, know? <laughs> but, so the, the uh, summer kitchen was kind of usually just on the side of the house and it was where, you know, in the hotter months where all the canning would get done. So then he didn't heat up the, the rest of the house. So it was just this, this, you know, in, in certain houses it was, you know, larger, but you had a separate stove and, and that's where the majority of the cooking, you know, was, was done because you had this tiny house that was, you know, basically an oven and, right. you know, in okay. the summertime. So, so that the root, the door to that room was to remain unlocked again in a crime scene. Just here it is. So Sheriff Steph Rood and uh, State's Attorney Williams were finally located with the help of Bismarck Police Chief Chris Martinson. So this kind of crime, especially at this caliber, did not happen often, obviously, thankfully. So the McLean County Sheriff had very, very little experience. Chief Martinson from Bismarck, he offered his assistance to help. And when I say offered his assistance, it's a nice way of saying that he completely just kind of took over, which maybe maybe someone needed to. You know, I'm, enough, I'm not yeah. saying that's an insult or a, or a kudos, but he, he kind of took over. So in addition to Chief Martinson, a photographer, like a family portrait photographer, Fred Holmbo, Bismarck Tribune reporter Frank Sturkin, and Burley County Sheriff Roland Welch, and then just a random friend of the state's attorney um, from McLean County, Fred McCurdy. They all piled into two vehicles and began the trek north to Turtle Lake, which would... I like at, how the friend makes time, it in. Hey, oh, what are you doing? I don't, checking don't, out a murder. Can well, I come with? And everything that I could... Everything I tried to look for, like, the hell was this guy doing there? Like, what... what why? But anyway, again, it's that maybe that morbid curiosity. But so the the trek from or the drive from Bismarck at the time. So Bismarck, you know, located in South Central North Dakota, would have taken about four hours to get to Turtle Lake, which in modern day time is about an hour. So it's a it's a they had just gotten there, kind of reconvened and kind of 
you know, gathered everybody and then drove right back. So eight hours and a very bumpy, bumpy ride. So when the caravan of men arrived in Turtle Lake, they stopped at the hotel to meet with some of the men who had already done a very, when I say this, I mean it loosely, preliminary investigation. So Dr. Stuckey, the, the county coroner, was among those men. He explained that Beta, along with her daughters, five-year-old Lydia, three-year-old Martha, 13-year-old and their 13-year-old farmhand, Jacob Hofer, were found in the cellar. Jacob and daughters, 12-year-old Bertha and nine-year-old Maria. Did I... Did I say that? Did I say her name? No, I didn't. And nine-year-old Maria were in the barn. So originally John Craft, the neighbor, thought that only one daughter had been in the barn, but because, uh, and then because it was was dark and the way the bodies had just been mindlessly thrown into the cellar, it was difficult to see how many bodies were actually there. Just so, uh, yeah. It's, that's disgusting. It's a mess of bodies. It, 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 uh, to put it's it horrific. not nicely, yes. Yeah. So the causes mm. of death... So for Jacob, the coroner began his report at that point then. Jacob had been shot in the back from long range and died from a second wound, also when inflicted with a shotgun. So the the, the second shot had been uh, was fired at close, such close rain, range that it tore three ribs from his spine, and there was a an opening in his in his chest cavity that was several inches in diameter. Beta, the mother, she was also shot in the back at close range. That was her only wound. Bertha, the oldest daughter, she was shot in the face at very close range, and then there was a second blow with a hatchet. Maria, she was shot in the back of the head behind the left ear. Edna, who is eight, was shot in the back of the head at close range. Lydia, she's the second youngest, she's about six, was um, shot in the back of the head and also a second blow with a hatchet. So the youngest daughter, Martha, who was three, she was the only one who was not killed by the shotgun blast. She was killed with the broadside of the hatchet blade. Jacob Hofer, the the hired farmhand, was shot through the back of the neck, and uh, that severed the jugular vein, so killing him instantly. It's That's so brutal. shocking every 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 time. It never mm-hmm. it, the blows never lessen. It, broadside of the hatchet. Does that mean the back of the hatchet the, or the blade? The bro- okay, I, yeah. the broadside. Yeah. All right, yeah. I just didn't know. It just yeah, like you said, it you know those and from the know, sounds of so children. many so many shots in the back of the head. So this sounds like they were probably they were exe- executed or running. Yeah. If they were executed or running, just speculatively, the bodies were moved, judging by all the the, the blood smears and drag, and marks, drag marks everywhere. Mm-hmm. So if yeah, they weren't they they weren't killed. Where I mean, they were may- maybe the mom was running, but I feel like the kids were probably yeah. shocked and in fear and crying and brutally and savagely murdered at point blank range by a cold blooded yeah. killer. Yeah. It's so the those the group of men the the ones that had come from Bismarck you know all of the people that needed to be there and then the one random friend went to the wolf farm and then were met by Deputy Wells two of Beta's brothers so two so two of the mother's brothers and then her brother-in-law Emmanuel and then a few neighbors so they were just hanging out in the summer kitchen just hanging out there investigating. It's- yeah, I, it's it still just baffles me, and that's what stuck out from the very beginning is just the whole crime scene operation thing. Well, it, it sounds like the crime scene functionality was non-existent. Yeah, there, there is there, no crime scene there, operation, right? No, no insults to these brave officers of that no, time. Not at it doesn't all. sound just, like it, there's a there's a detective among them. Like the like the skills of detective of being a detective and the actual skills of investigation were they even existent? You were a sheriff of a of a rural community. But the sheriff the but a chief of police in a neighboring county I mean, I, don't know. When, like, I guess it's, 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 it's a separate different. it's a separate thing that history teaches us. It, sure. But like, there's definitely investiga- been an evolution. Investigation wasn't there. No, like it just no. wasn't a, a piece of policing at, right. at this point in time. It's it's so evident in the way that something like this is handled. Right. Yeah. And and just you know, thankfully, it's. I mean, you might find better. some clues. I'm, I'm I'm eager to hear if they find clues during their uh, investigation, hanging out, summer kitchen. What do they find? Well, well, buckle up. So the inspection of the crime scene would go into the early morning. Sheriff Steph Rood, along with the three family members and then a neighbor, stayed all night in the summer kitchen. So here's the the interesting thing: it is like 
it, it just I can't get past that. It's it's an actual crime scene, and there they are. So anyway, I'm 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 getting off topic because that's driving me crazy. But so in the morning, four of the men left for breakfast, leaving just Sheriff Steph Root at the farm. So a little while later, at about 5:30 a.m., he heard a car door shut. The sheriff then saw a man who most likely thought that he was alone, and he's kind of looking through the windows and he's walking towards the barn. So greeting the stranger, Sheriff Steph Rood introduced himself and began visiting with the neighbor, who was Henry Lair. During the entire conversation, he was just a little squirrely. Lair kept his hand in his right pocket, didn't take it out the entire time. He claimed he was there to help with chores, but then kind of trailed off and, and just began walking around with a couple of the investigators when they had showed up at the property. And so he was just he was just acting off, right? And just, I don't know, it just kind of your radar is is up you're uh, on this guy because something's just not right well look everybody knows about the murders you got cops hanging out at the house in the summer kitchen and this guy just shows up wandering into the garage yeah like what are you doing weirdo he was a neighbor you know and still uh, you know these people have been murdered everybody knows about it it's not just come over and hang out well but let me play you're not dude that was invited with the policeman from hang on a second though let me let's play devil's advocate for a second because it's there's chores to be done there there are chores to be done choring to be done it's 1920 and there are no boundaries for people obviously they they have no problem rubbernecking and you know just kind of being right there in the mix so i mean you know don't don't be quick to judge right right still so well now you can though so a little while later out of nowhere layers suggested that they go look for eggs in the chicken coop just completely random so thinking this was odd obviously have you guys um, looked at the eggs that's it, like it was almost like an exclamation, like "Let's go hunt for eggs!" Like it was, oh. it was very, very odd. So now you can judge him. Sorry, now, Mr. Layer. Yeah. Easter was a few weeks ago. Chicken eggs, dummy. We're at a farm. Oh. God. Anyway, stop laughing. Um, <laughs> so. Thinking this was odd, Sheriff Steprood sent one of the men to go with him. So once there, out of nowhere, Layer pointed at a, a grouping of eggs and, and then exclaimed that he had found shotgun shells under the hay. So bringing those back to the group of investigators, Steprood was obviously even more suspicious. He knew that the hay in the coop had already been looked through. It had already been gone through. But what made it worse was now he noticed that Layer's hand was no longer in his pocket. So now judge him. So later that morning, the coroner, Dr. Stuckey, began his inquest. So a coroner's inquest is, is a medical and legal investigation into deaths that aren't standard. So obviously in this situation, you know, they're going to do it. It's not somebody that died of natural causes. It's not a modern day practice. But now I understand where shows like Quincy MD and, you know, the where the medical examiner is doing the investigation. Now I understand where this comes from because sure. I, I wasn't familiar with an inquest. But so the interesting thing at the beginning when I said that at the, the the bodies were not to be moved, so this is why. So oddly enough, uh, the, those inquests or those investigations were usually handled like right at the crime scene regardless of the location. I mean, so if you're in a tavern, shut it down and that's where you're, that's where you're looking at it. So, I mean, it's very interesting. So the coroner and then a jury of men, of course, just men. You say a jury of men, men. the coroner and a jury of men. men so only. that's like a group of watchers of onlookers of the, he got to pick of the, the jury. event. Okay. Yep. Yep. So you he get would... to hand pick who's going to watch you carve up a few corpses no. in your inquest. Oh, no, 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 no. Don't take it no, that, that far. That... Don't take it okay. that far. No, just that you're going to do the investigating and the jury is going to help you decide Then they're going to, you know, that's they're going to help you decide what examine uh, yeah or yeah make sure you don't um, the, do the anything weird upon and manner of death and, and interesting um, okay they're going to watch witnesses be interviewed and they they look at the bodies of the deceased i mean kind of the just the actual investigation so you know when you say there's no detective you know with the with the sheriff's department or police department that's the te- that's the, what they're the detective doing. was the jury of men and well and the and the coroner wow. so okay. yeah so it it's obviously shifted from that now. So so on that Sunday, that is exactly what took place. Throughout the day, during the inquest and the investigation, hundreds of neighbors, hundreds of neighbors and townspeople just came and went. A couple of leads came from it, but the biggest ones were all regarding Henry Lair, which was the suspicious shotgun shell neighbor guy. So apparently there had been a few disagreements and certainly some hostility between Lair and Jacob Wolf. And during his investigation or during his interview, he didn't say anything about it. So 
Again. Did not volunteer information about his dispute with the Wolf family. I, I had a bad feeling about that guy right away. So clearly we haven't gotten any right. better at lying. That's, nope. not that's not evolved. Police nope. work has, but you know, human nature has not. Layers, what, what caused those disagreements was Layers' livestock would trample on Wolf's land and then graze where they shouldn't. So And he would just let them do it. And so Jacob was furious that Layer allowed his cattle to do so. And then Layer was mad that one of his cows was bitten by Wolf's dog. So they'd had some words a, a couple of times. Apparently there were some issues with Lair gossiping around town and around the neighbors uh, about the Wolf family and specifically about Jacob. But again, did not volunteer any of that information. So they learned that in the yeah. yep. so, secondhand kind of info. Right. He said, she yeah. said, you start piecing no, things together. He said Everybody, he didn't say. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So a, a couple of days passed. The leads were investigated, but they just they still weren't closer to finding out who who could have done something like this. They looked into different theories. One being a murder suicide, which was you know impossible, just the way that things were laid out. Was there more than one killer? There were even a couple of thousand dollar rewards. There were two thousand dollar rewards that were offered, which that would equal just I put this in here for curiosity's sake. That would equal about thirteen thousand dollars in today's money. Okay. Big chunk so it's of money. a big, it's a big chunk of money. So the murder weapon did turn up. It wow. was in a slough not far from the the wolf farm. And for those of you not familiar with our Midwestern terms, uh, a slough is similar to like a swamp, but less swampy, I guess. But less basically, gators too. Yeah, right. Um, but basically, just kind of soft muddy ground in a pond. Yeah. Uh, like. Right. Looks like some overland flooding. Maybe a flooding. muskrat. Yeah. A lot yeah. less dangerous than the gators. Definitely no gators. So they so. found it in a slough. Like, like kudos to them because like, like that's in the surrounding area. This this weapon could be any. And you find it in a muddy like slew. It's yeah. not an easy find. No, you, you and, don't I have mean, you don't have a metal detector. You don't have any technology. It's almost uh, yeah. You're canvassing the ground, and I imagine they had like rakes or whatever they were using to kind of poke into the ground. But that's a big find in a slew. Well, it's it's good old fashioned police work, I think. Um, good too, old you know, fashioned police it's, work. I mean, obviously, a, a crime of this caliber, of this magnitude. You're canvassing the land all Every, around. There are yeah. lots of people out there looking. And so, you know, you're hundreds of onlookers. You know, they're probably helping out, too. So, so on Tuesday, April 27th, five days after the murders, three days after they were found, the prime suspect, Henry Lair, was interviewed by Sheriff Steffrude, Bismarck Police Chief Martinson, and North Dakota Attorney General William Langer, also known as Wild Bill. Oh, I love it. The yeah. attorney's name is Wild Bill. Yeah, that's his nickname. You gotta yeah. get Wild. Yeah, it's good. So, Stay tuned for an episode on him because he's shady and interesting. So, Foreshadowing. Um, Layer was, it's not this episode. Right, I get yeah, it. I but, get that, yeah. but um, planting seeds. <laughs> yeah. So Layer was was interviewed, um, but then released. And so things were, you know, they were finding more and more, but things were also heating up politically. So Attorney General Langer was, was bringing in two private investigators to assist with the investigation. Langer was taking it personally that the office of Governor Lynn Frazier was not offering any assistance whatsoever with the case. And part of that was because Governor Frazier had authorized an innocent boy to be arrested and was basically forgotten about in jail for three days. And I say a boy because I think he was a, like a teenager again, right? So obviously Unre unrelated he, to the wolf. Uh, unrelated, okay. yeah. So okay. he was he was tiptoeing, uh, you know, around this case, and so he was, you know, he wanted everybody to make damn sure that they had all of their evidence or you know an overwhelming amount of evidence before they made any arrests. He 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 was. It, it, Gun shy. it yeah. does. It does make a little sense that Poor Wild Bill is a little pissed that the governor's office isn't sending some form of sure. more advanced and trained investigator or taking notice to this. This is again, we don't we don't have a lot of murders in North Dakota even now. Right. So yeah. to get. Uh, a family that is massacred, it should be all hands on deck. It, it should be ev well, everybody who's anybody of, in the... Yeah, it kind of it, was. It, it did get but, there to a degree, but... Right. Well, the, the interesting part about that is is Frazier did, Governor Frazier did eventually send one of his little fellas, but he wasn't included in anything. So well, it's, a, it's a good old-fashioned pissing match is what right. it is. Because, well, and it's something to, you know, to not be understated, I guess, at this time. That That is massive news throughout the whole state. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's yeah. the biggest story to get a, yeah. a a homicide of this nature even back right. then. So yeah. So and that, so that's what I mean. I mean, it's heating up politically. People are just I don't know. They're it's just stupid. It's like I on the you know, I on the ball there guys, but so the next day, Wednesday, April 28th was for mourning and holding the funerals of the Wolf family and 13-year-old Jacob Hofer. So for a town of around 400 people, well over 2,000 people attended that funeral. Prior to the funeral service, with investigators' eyes watching the crowd, the neighbor and the, the prime suspect at the time, Henry Layer, raised 
caused even more suspicions when he began lifting the coffin lids so that he could look upon their faces one more time. What? And again, 1920, maybe the boundaries just weren't there. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not trying to stick up for him. It feels weird. Just trying to throw that out there. But it's weird. It's it, weird. You're going to roll you, up at a doing? funeral? My neighbors, let me just peek. Yeah. Just open I, I, like, open why? It. Why do you want to see their faces? Like, well, and the, there's a reason. I'm sorry, it's a, because you're a creep. Well, and there's a reason there's a coffin. I mean, uh, like, why on. are you. You're not I even family. Be, no, he's a neighbor, and a neighbor that they'd figured out that they there was hostility. Like, what do you. That's like, weird. And 2,000 people there, and you're going to be that that guy wandering yeah. up on a. On a and opening he, the coffin? He was the only guy. It's not like this was common practice. So. Right. It's weird. It is. It's. It's very weird. So I. I, I don't get it. But after the funeral service in a grave of, uh, about eight feet wide and twenty feet long, Jacob, his wife Beta, five of their six daughters, Bertha, Maria, Edna, Lydia, and Martha, and their hired hand Jacob Hofer were lowered into the ground. Wow. The investigation into Henry Layer continued. Layer didn't have an alibi for the morning of the murder. Uh, which only made things worse, of course, and added to the growing list of circumstantial evidence against him. On Thursday, April 29th, investigators, and mainly Bismarck Chief Martinson, they interviewed Layer again, and, and this time they get a signed affidavit. So a, a week passes, and they're still building their cases, or their case, and on May 11th, my birthday, um, 1920, Henry Layer is arrested for the, the murders. I wasn't born in 1920. My birthday is May 11th. I wasn't, it wasn't 1920, but that, you know what? I shouldn't should put that in there right at the, like when, I'm sorry, that was a jerk move. <laughs> On May 11th, 1920, Henry Layer was arrested for the murders. Well, I'll stop talking about my birthday. Yeah. So when I threw myself off here, so he remained in his cell until 8 p.m. the next evening. And so finally, just after midnight on Thursday, May 13th, after being in- interrogated from the night before for hours upon hours and being forced to look at the gruesome photographs of the, of the crime scene, the deceased, and then even baby Emma, as they found her, Layer signed a confession to all eight murders. So he claimed that in after- In front of the jury of men. No, they there? that's over. The okay. inquest was over. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I should have been more clear on that. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, so he had claimed that after an argument with Jacob Wolf about his cow being bit by Jacob's dog, Jacob took out a double-barreled shotgun, and when Layer grabbed for it, they struggled, causing the gun to fire two shots, one of them hitting and killing Beta, and the other hitting their farmhand, Jacob. Jacob ran, Dad Jacob ran, but Layer reloaded and fired the shotgun at Jacob, hitting him in the back. Maria and Edna began fleeing towards the barn, but Layer shot them before they got there. Bertha, Lydia, and Martha were still in the house um, screaming. Obviously, they're hearing what's going on. Layer reloaded again and shot Bertha and Lydia then hit Martha with the broadside of the hatchet. He then dragged the dad, Jacob, Jacob's body to the barn, covering the bodies of two of his daughters, and then returned to the house and uh, pushed the, the bodies into the cellar. So when asked why he didn't kill Emma, he claimed that he would have if he had known that she was in the room. Jesus. So... Just hours after the signed confession was taken, Layer was brought before Judge William Nusla, where he pled guilty and was immediately sentenced to life in prison. So apparently this was 1920's answer to the right to a speedy trial because it was like done. So exactly 48 hours after his arrest, he was booked at the North Dakota State Penitentiary. Whoa. Yeah. I don't think it happens like that anymore. No, that's <laughs> um, a, that's a yeah, quick yeah. answer. Like we- a little bit. I think there's a few more processes now. but So a few days later, on May 16th, 1920, Layer's wife, Lydia, and two of her brothers drove to Bismarck to see her incarcerated husband. They were told that the prisoner was not in condition to be seen. Whoa. So weeks later, on Sunday, May 30th, they once again made the trip and Layer retracted his confession. He once again claimed his innocence and, uh, and, and claimed that he had been beaten and was bullied into confessing by the investigators. He was also told that he would be released to a murderous mob if he refused to cooperate. Uh, I, I, I knew there was a catch. So, I mean, and obviously being told, you know, being told that that he's not in any condition to be seen. I mean, that I think that kind of says, like, well, why? I mean, because so, he's getting his ass kicked right, in there, right? Uh, no, not in there by the or, by the investigators because it was you know right. like an hour after he it, was booked. He's still a really suspicious weirdo, and I'll wait to see how it all plays out. Yeah. But well, and just because you're the, weird the doesn't story, mean you did no. It, of course, you know? being weird does not make you a killer. Trust me, I know. Um, <laughs> but his the, the 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 story doesn't play out for me no, as no. as it was confessed in this initial story. It doesn't right, it doesn't right. play out. Uh, why would well, he have all the extra bullets? You, you get you get the other guy's gun, and then you just happen to have a, a bunch of extra shells in your pocket 
for the other guy's gun. Were they there? Well, I, I, Maybe his hand was cold. I, and I'm not. I'm. I'm not trying to be funny. I don't know. We'll like see maybe, how it plays out. But, but that that's, he's, that story. He's got some, well, but he, I can see it from both sides. So I, I can too. But yeah. if, if you took the gun from Jacob, why do you have the same shotgun shells in your pocket? Where that were all are shotguns universal? You just have the same shotgun shells. Well, Happen to have them there. Well. I think it's easy to just poke holes in this entire confession. Of course, I mean because it's well, investigators pounded him, and and right. we, we know how that we know how that right. goes. Even in, other in cases. even in modern day cases, uh, I we, mean, it's we a, still it's, see it today. Yeah. So the um, over the next few months, a few member of layer, few members of Layer's family, including his wife and her brothers, and then also a few friends, meet with Governor Fraser twice, and then they even hire a legal team to get a new trial. So the judge who sentenced Layer to life in prison does hear the arguments, but then denies the petition. For a change of plea and a jury trial. So the same guy who ruled on him also said no, like that. We won't give you a jury trial. Right. So they they brought the case all the way to the North Dakota Supreme Court in 1921, where Layer's appeal was refused. So I, I think there are just so many things that don't add up. You know, okay. So he has his hand in his pocket the entire time. The guy's nervous. He's at a he's at a crime scene. His neighbors were killed, and he probably thinks that he's going to be a suspect because everybody knows they were fighting, right? I mean, so it's it could just be a, a, a nervous habit. I mean, it's just so many of these things just just don't add up, and and. So even after his Supreme Court petition was denied and a hundred years later, people still question if he was the, he was the one who actually did it. So sadly, he I mean, he wouldn't even get to to use the, the court process. Layer died on, on March 21st, 1925 in the penitentiary infirmary from complications of an appendectomy. So and I, I say sadly he died because if that's our that's that's how our court system is is written right is is we're you know how many times have we gotten it wrong you know and and back in this in this time where you a know, lot of times a lot of times way, way too know, many times so it's uh, so it's it's you know if he wasn't the one who did it that's you know that's awful if he was well I'm sorry about your bad surgery buddy I mean it's it's a, well and I know, and I look at ways. this too is if if you are if you are one of these public figures researching investigating mm-hmm. prosecuting this murder you want to be successful in that endeavor and you find your guy and you look good to the public and you you can stand on this pulpit and call yourself a hero and not allow that to be called into question whatsoever the yeah. the, the, the 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 fact that the jury trial was denied is a, is is a little obscene uh, not surprising but it well, especially not in this time frame. No. You know, I mean, it's it, well, and and good old boy clubs were alive and well and encouraged in 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 this time frame. You know, so many of these people, you know, like some of the names of the key players, you know, like uh, Governor Frazier, the the guy who uh, the judge who sentenced him. I mean, it goes the entire way down the list. They were far too intertwined for Layer to ever stand a chance. Um, at a successful appeal, or or even just to get his his actual day in court. Now, by me saying that, I'm not I'm not trying to take away from the family. I mean, this was awful. This was brutal, you know. So I'm not trying to make light of this guy if if this was him. But it's it's that's why we have those processes in place, right? So uh, so I mean that with the utmost respect to the victims and their and their their families who are still around, you know, today. But a lot of people question whether Layer acted alone or even if he did have a role in the murder. And I, I don't think we can say that we'll ever know the truth, right? I think I don't, I don't think we'll ever know the truth is what I'm trying to say. No, the way the yeah. story plays out, he's clearly a, a suspicious figure. But the story, uh, yeah, the story, the story's peculiar. The investigation is is pretty half-assed, given it's 1920. Mm-hmm. So they, I'm sure they were doing the best they could. Sure, uh, absolutely. It, it, and I'm not trying to sound like I'm I'm throwing these guys under the bus. Not I'm. They were all no by no means. Yeah, they weren't all, it's, all it's, bad people. It's, it's, just, it's a tough job. Investigating murder isn't easy. Had. You get you you get a murder weapon, but that's yeah that that's that's the biggest one for me is murdering everybody alone. It's a big family. The fact that there was like no resistance, there seems to be no struggle. If they interviewed Layer in in the in pretty much it sounds like in the within a few days following the right. murders, yeah. there was a struggle. He had no bruises. He had no signs or no evidence. I imagine they, if they thought he was their guy, they, they had to have looked at his hands. They had to have mm-hmm. looked at his his body, his face. And I just right. wonder if there if there had been most of the time. If you if you killed this many people and were in some sort of struggle with the dad, would there there be no marks, no no nothing? I don't know. It's, I, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it just seems off. Would right? they would they have paid attention to it? I, I mean. Right. Were they looking for those details? Yeah. And who knows? I, I mean, it's just a, a couple of questions. And, and 
How how do two shots? How are you struggling so much that two shots, the only two shells that that are fired? So it's it's a shotgun, right? So was it one hits Beta and then the other one just happens to hit Jacob Hofer just down like? Well, right. What? That's, I mean, it just seems a little too perfect in in exactly. my in my opinion. It just seems it, well, it seems weird. He, you you, yeah. you possibly have a group of of investigators that put the story together as they saw it and bullied this guy, sleep deprived him, put these bloody pictures in his face. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's sad all around because the, I think the biggest thing is, I mean, we'll never, we'll never know the, the the truth. So it's in the books, but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely right. uh, Yeah, it is. But it's, is it the truth though? So whatever became of Emma, the um, eight month old survivor of the tragedy, sweet Emma, who according to Keel's research was alone from approximately 12 people on Thursday, April 22nd until 12 p.m. on Saturday, April 24th. Oh, that poor baby. She went to live with her aunt, Bita's sister, and her husband, that was Christina and Emmanuel Hofer. After their deaths in 1933 and 1932, respectively, she remained on their farm with three of their kids. And, and during high school in, in Turtle Lake, she lived with her guardians, Emil and, and Vera Oz. So Emil was was one of the, the deputies in McLean County at the time of the murders. And so right after the murders, they were, or the, the death of her aunt and uncle, they were they became her, her guardian uh, or guardians. So she later in life became an educator, went to Minot State Teachers College, actually, married Clarence Hansen in 1940, and together they had three children, Priscilla, Curtis, and Sheila. Um, she lived in Turtle Lake until her death in 2003 at age 84. Ultimately, yeah. she got to have a pretty peaceful life, it sounds like. I, you know, I, I com- think that, That's some comfort for me at the end of a, this, a little this, bit, this brutal um, tragedy. Listening to an interview of um, from her that her son Curtis did with KX News, actually, she she struggled. You know, she she had one dress, she was teased, she was always, always known as as the wolf girl right so i think it was it was pretty difficult for her not only dealing with just the trauma of and the and the tragedy that she but, but she then went she, through, she but was then ostracized also, because basically of it. yeah, yeah because of, because of that so my resources bismarck tribune kx news north dakota state historical society and of course the research of vernon keel the murdered family.com he's got all of uh, a lot of the documents there and then he also has a book that cover the murders his book is more of a, a work of historical fiction, but but nothing is um, embellished. It's all from his research and, and everything. So, you know, I think conversations, you know, that's where the fiction part comes in. So it's actually right. a really interesting read, but but that is called The Murder Family as well. So it's a pretty good book. So yeah, that's it. Wow. And also, uh, of course, special thank you to uh, everybody out there listening who's here with us live, wherever you are. Midwest Murder airs every other Monday. If you want something fun to listen listen to on the opposite weeks we do produce midwest uh when we're, when we're not giving you midwest murder we do produce a pretty awesome history podcast here at the good talk network it's called myth america it explores the myths and ideas that have shaped american culture and identity so check that out it's a lot less murdery than this show but very engaging and uh, a nice look at history and a lot of social commentary so again thank you Midwest Murder. Yeah. We appreciate um, you guys. Hey, and, and follow us. We're on social media. We are on social. Instagram, we have social media Facebook. places. 